I don't know about you, but I'm already really encouraged, and we haven't even gotten to God's Word yet. I've been encouraged by conversations I've had with you so far, and encouraged by our worship together, encouraged by what the Lord is doing to save people here in Liverpool and all over the place. Uh, but as we come to God's Word, why don't we pray together, and uh, we'll try to understand this really confusing passage. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that it reveals uh, Jesus Christ to us. It helps us to understand not only who he is, but what he's done for us and the extent of your amazing love for us. We pray you help us to understand it this morning. Amen. Well, this passage that Naomi just read to us, uh, this passage that we're going to look at today, it's going to take us back through the door. We're going to go back through the door into the heavenly throne room. Over the last couple of weeks, Josh has been helping us see what Revelation is saying about what's happening here on earth. But today we're going back through the door uh, into the throne room. And uh, all through this series, we've been looking at this theme of heaven and earth, and we've been seeing how everything that happens through that door in the heavenly throne room actually affects what happens here on earth. And maybe you've been here through this series, or maybe you're here today for the first time, and you're thinking, yeah, okay, if that's true, if everything that happens in heaven really affects what happens here on earth, if that's really true, why is it still so bad here sometimes? Well, what we're going to see today is that one day, that's all going to end. All the bad stuff, the terror attacks, the cancer diagnosis, the loneliness, the poverty, the need to seek asylum, all of that will one day come to an end. And that's where this whole series is headed. And not actually not just the series, but all of time in history is actually headed into that direction where all of that will come to an end. But if we're honest today, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like things are headed in the right direction. It doesn't feel that way when it only takes 15 minutes for a 24-story building to be completely engulfed in flames. That fire at Grenfell Tower, it shows us that there still is a real problem here on earth. That God may be there in heaven. He may be sitting on his throne. But there is still clearly a problem here on earth that needs to be dealt with. And that's what Revelation 19 shows us. It shows us that there's still a problem. But it also shows us that God in heaven has a solution for that problem. And the solution is the way that we overcome, and it sounds really strange when I think of it now, the way that we overcome, the way we overcome our problems here on earth, and here's the strange thing, is by taking up an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That doesn't really offer much encouragement when you hear that on the surface. It sounds really strange. How could a wedding help anything? And who's marrying a lamb? Is that even legal? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure there's laws against that. Well, before we get to that, let's try to understand the problem. And the problem is this. We need to break up with Babylon. Before we can ever get to this wedding, three things need to happen for this wedding to take place. First, we need to break up with Babylon. Second, we need to make up with the Lamb. And third, we need to take up this invitation. And so first, we need to break up with Babylon. So when we get to chapter nine, verse 19, verse 1, it says this, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And so now we know we're looking back through the door again. We're, we're back in the heavenly throne room because when we get there, we meet this great multitude. 
And they're loudly praising God at the top of their lungs. It sounds like a roar and they're shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. But then notice just for a second why they're shouting this in verse 2. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Hallelujah, salvation, honor, power, and glory. For true and just are his judgments. He's condemned this prostitute. Do you know what this song is? It's a breakup song. I haven't broken up with anyone for a long time. I don't really listen to breakup songs anymore, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing, I mean. But back in the days when I did listen to breakup songs, and there were those days, I would listen to Fiona Apple. Because she sang songs like this. I love these lyrics. She sings, I took off my glasses while you were yelling at me once, more than once, so as not to see you see me react. Should have put them, should have put them on again, so I could see you see me sincerely yelling back. I love that lyric. And here's what we're getting a picture of. That if we're going to take part in this heavenly worship, if we're going to join the multitude in heaven, shouting and singing at the top of our lungs, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, then we also need to sing the breakup song. We need to break up with Babylon. Because look at who this prostitute in verse 2 really is. She is the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And to understand who this great prostitute is, we need to go back to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we meet this character, this alluringly attractive and well-dressed woman. And in chapter 17, she's called Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. And if you read on into verse 18, we're then given a description of a city called Babylon, a city who, it says, is the great prostitute. And in these chapters, Babylon represents human society without God. If you read through those chapters, it's human society in all of its violence, in all of its perversion, in all of its greed, in all of its selfishness. And that's what society looks like if you remove God, if you take God out of the equation. And, and you notice if you read through these, it isn't just happening in one nation In Revelation 17 and 18, you begin to get a sense that this happens in all nations on earth, in every city, in every town, in every village. And not only that, but it's happening in every single human heart. Babylon is there. And in the series, we've been looking back and forth between heaven and earth. And do you know what earth looks like without God's influence? It looks like Babylon. And so if heaven is where God is worshipped completely, then Babylon is where God is not worshipped at all. If heaven is where God's will is done perfectly, then Babylon is where God's will is completely and utterly opposed. And all of that human sin, all the violence, the perversion, the greed, the selfishness, it's all described in chapter 17, 18, and 19. Not as disobedience. Not as rule-breaking or law-breaking. In those chapters, it's pictured as adultery. And here's where we begin to understand why we need to break up with Babylon. 
Because if we're with Babylon, if we've got the relationship with Babylon, the great prostitute, then what the text is showing us, if if that's our relationship, then we're committing adultery against God. And do you know what it's telling us? It's saying that all human sin is like adultery. Every human sin is like adultery. And these chapters show us, especially now when we get to chapter 19, that sin doesn't just break God's rules. It doesn't just break the law. But sin breaks God's heart. You know, up till now, if you read through Revelation, you see God relate to human beings on earth as king. You see him on his throne. You see him relate to human beings as judge. You see him sending judgments. You see him as savior, as the lamb who sacrificed himself. You see him as the warrior who's got a sword. And you see him as the great shepherd. But when we get to chapter 19, all of a sudden there's a turn. There's a shift. We we begin to see a new way that God wants to relate to human beings on earth. Because in chapter 19, he's also a groom. You see, God is and does and wants to relate to to us in all of those ways. As king, as savior, as warrior, as shepherd, as judge. But he also wants to relate to human beings with the intimacy and the tenderness and the commitment of a marriage. God wants to relate to us as a groom relates to a bride, as a husband to a wife. And that's one of the great themes in all of Scripture, Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. We see God saying, I want a relationship with you, with people, with human beings. I want a relationship with them like a marriage. And this image, this picture of God wanting to relate to us as husband and wife, it actually reveals something to us that is completely unique about the God of the Bible. Because no other religion, no other God in all the great religions of the world ever talks like this. It's only the God of Christianity who wants a relationship with his people so intimate, so loving, so all-encompassing that it's described like a marriage. And what is marriage but a relationship where you give yourself completely and utterly to your partner? Everything that you have becomes theirs. And everything they have becomes yours. You move in together. You join bank accounts. But it's not just that. There's a deep personal intimacy that comes with marriage. You see each other naked. There's a sexual union. And when you're alone, your conversation takes a different tone. There's, there are things that you tell each other that you never tell anyone else. You have little names that you call each other that no one else knows. And by the way, if you look at Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, you see that Jesus is going to give you a name that nobody else knows but you and him. A few months ago, I uh, handed somebody my uh, iPhone. I had a picture on there of a Wi-Fi code at this conference that we're at, and I said, he said, hey, what's the code? And so I handed him the code, and at that very same moment that I handed him the code, I got a text message from my wife. And on that text message was a little pet name that she has for me. And so now whenever I see this guy, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know you're hoping I am. Every time I see this guy, he goes, hey, pet name. And it's funny. But at the same time, actually, it feels like, like there's a third party that's broken in on this intimacy. Like he's invading on it. 
Like I somehow let a third party accidentally break into this relationship that we have. But don't you see, that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Where He has a name for you that nobody else knows but Him. But that can't happen if there's a third party. It can't happen if somebody else has your attention. It can't happen if you're being unfaithful. It can't happen if you have a relationship with somebody else. And what these three chapters show us and what verse 2 shows us is that we're all in a relationship with Babylon. To one degree or another, every single one of us has a relationship with Babylon. And what we see in these chapters is that sin is like adultery. And when we understand that, when we learn what the true nature of sin is, we know that at its root, sin is loving anything or anyone more than God. Sin is giving the full attention full loving attention of your heart that belongs to God to someone else. Sin is making anything more central to your thoughts, to your dreams, to your hopes, to your emotions. It's taking anything and giving it that other than God. That's what sin is. That's the nature of what sin is. But listen, God does not want just your allegiance as king. He doesn't just want your hope as savior. He doesn't just want you to rely on Him as your warrior or as your shepherd. He wants all of that, but He also wants to to love Him intimately like He's your groom. And I want you just to think about that for a minute. Think about your own life. Have you given Jesus Christ your allegiance? Are you happy to be called a Christian? Have you taken His name? Have you called on Him as as Savior? Have you recognized your sins and asked Him for forgiveness? Do you turn to Him as your warrior when you need Him to fight and help you? Do you call on Him as shepherd when you need Him to provide for you? Listen, it's entirely possible that someone can say yes to all of those things but have not given Him their heart. It's entirely possible that you have said yes to Jesus and all of those, you've said yes to all of those questions but you've not given Him your heart. It's possible to look to God, to look to Jesus Christ in all those ways, but to not truly love Him. That's the problem in the Ephesian church in chapter 2. They've given Him all their allegiance. They know every single thing there is to know about Jesus. Yet He says, you've forsaken your first love. They don't love Him. And if that's true of you, if you've given God everything but your heart, then this passage ought to challenge you because sin is not just breaking the rules. God, He is King. But He's not only our King, He's our groom. Sin isn't just breaking God's rules, it's breaking its heart. It's breaking God's heart in the way that an adulterer breaks his wife's heart. And so what that means is that we need to break up with Babylon. We need to sing the breakup song. But not only that, but secondly, we need to make up with the Lamb. Okay, so let's get to the really weird part of this image. In our passage, there's a prostitute and there's a bride. We can understand those images, but right here in the middle, there's a Lamb. And when you get to verses seven, verse 7, the multitude is shouting again, only this time it's even louder. And here's what they're shouting. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now here it is, the first mention in Revelation of the wedding. 
The very first time that we see God not only wants to be our king, but our groom. And if you were to sit down and read Revelation in one sitting, cover to cover, by the time you get here, you should be struck by this image. It should smack you in the face. Because up until now, Revelation has been all about a king and his conquest, or a judge and his justice, about a lamb and his sacrifice. But now when you get to chapter 19, you begin to see where the whole thing is headed. The whole book is headed towards a wedding. And in the last two chapters, the bride and the groom moving in together, sharing their home together. And only a relationship that intimate, that personal, can give us the full picture of how God wants to relate to us. And I want you to see the significance of this for where the book of Revelation is going, because what we're going to see next week, what we're going to see next week when we get to 21 and 22, is that God is moving in with us. He's coming to cohabitate with us. Heaven and earth will soon be joined together, and God will live with and dwell with His own people. But before He moves in, He wants to be married. Just like before a bride and a groom move in together, they have a wedding. Before heaven and earth are joined together, before God moves His dwelling place here to earth, there's a wedding. And it's not just any wedding, it's the wedding of a lamb. And so why this image? Why not the wedding of a king? You guys like that sort of thing here. Royal wedding. You shut down everything for a day or seven and everybody watches TV and puts out bunting. Why not the wedding of a king? Or why not the wedding of a warrior? Or even the wedding of a shepherd? Why is it the wedding of a lamb? Well, it's because the lamb is the very picture of the extent of God's love for us. The lamb is the very same lamb that we meet in chapter 5. This groom is the very same lamb who the four creatures and the 24 elders sang to as worthy in chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for persons, purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then the heavenly multitude joined in with a loud voice and sang in chapter 5, verse 12, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so the Lamb shows us the extent of God's love, that God was willing to die to have us as His bride. He shed His own blood to purchase us back from the intoxicating, alluring arms of Babylon. In one of John's other letters, he talks about this, and here's how John defines the extent of God's love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. The cross is such an extensive display of God's love because at the cross, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is the groom, He doesn't lay down His life for lovely people. He doesn't lay down His life for righteous people. He doesn't lay down His life for faithful people. He lays down His life for us. He lays down His life for unlovely people, for unrighteous people, for unfaithful adulterers like you and me. He lays down His life for us when we least deserve it. The Lamb loves us when we're not lovable, when we don't deserve to be loved. That's the extent of God's love for us. He's a Lamb. Despite our breaking His heart again and again as we live here in Babylon and as Babylon lives in our hearts, He loves us anyway. 
And so the reason it's a lamb getting married is because the lamb shows us the extent of God's great love for his bride. And his bride is the church. And so in fact, what you see here is that the way that you break up with Babylon is by making up with the lamb. It's by forsaking all others and taking him into your life. It's by making Jesus Christ your first love, by giving him all of your affections. And the way that's imaged here in this text is by looking at what the bride is wearing. And who is this bride? We're the bride. The church is the bride. And take a look at the rest of verse 7 and 8 and see what the church is wearing. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And so these clothes, fine linen, bright and clean, they're in direct contrast to what Babylon the great prostitute is wearing. In chapter 17, she's wearing purple and scarlet, and she was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, which all of that sounds really good until you get up close and you see what she's holding in her hand. And in her hand was a golden cup filled with the blood of Christian martyrs. And so when we wear her clothes, when we take part in her adultery, in her immorality, in her greed, when we wear her clothes, that's what we're doing. We're taking part in all of that. But what we see here in verses 7 and 8 is that the way we break up with Babylon is by taking off the clothes that she gives us, the clothes of unrighteousness, of greed, of adultery, and instead we put on the clothes that Jesus Christ gives us to wear, fine linen, bright and clean. Because when we do that, we become righteous. Putting on this clothes, these clothes mean that we become righteous, that God makes us righteous. We could never become righteous on our own. We need to receive Jesus' righteousness. And that's pictured in these verses like a bride putting on her wedding gown. And so the way that we break up with Babylon and make up with the Lamb is then to live in this clothing of Christ's righteousness. And when we do that, notice verse 8, it results in us doing righteous things. These clothes they stand for, they picture the righteous acts of God's holy people. And what's amazing about this is when we put on these, this fine linen, bright and clean, we're positionally righteous in Christ, but then when we wear them out, we are practically righteous. That's what it's saying. In a very real sense, when we wear the righteousness of Christ, we're bringing heaven to earth. Every time you do a righteous deed, you're wearing the righteousness of Christ. You're taking what you are positionally and making it practical. When you do acts of mercy, when you join safe families for children, when you look after an ailing parent, you're wearing the righteousness of Christ. You're being practically what you are positionally. When you engage in reaching lost people with the good news about Jesus Christ, when you do uncover with a colleague, when you help with the welcome week of Chinese students coming in, when you help with one of our summer mission teams or, or do our summer holiday club, you are wearing the righteousness of Christ. And when you do the right thing at home or at work or on campus, when everyone else is doing what's wrong, you're wearing the righteousness of Christ. You're wearing fine linen, bright and clean, on display for everyone. And so in order to get to this great wedding, we first need to break up with Babylon. Second, we need to make up with the Lamb. And then finally and briefly, we need to take up the invitation. 
Look at verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so if the church, if the corporate body, us as a corporate church, and us with all the other churches globally around the world and history and now and on into the future, if that is the bride, then the individual members of the church are those who are invited. And if you're invited, you're blessed. To be blessed means to receive God's favor. I received earlier this spring an invitation should be a picture of it on the screen from my friends Chris and Anna. I was going to read it to you, but I forgot to bring them with. But it says something to the effect of, you are warmly or cordially invited to the wedding of Chris and Anna. Come and celebrate with us. And I was delighted to receive that invitation. I was blessed by it because they're showing me their favor by inviting me. Chris wanted me to tell you, by the way, everyone's invited to the first part and the last part, but not the middle. (laughs) I was delighted to get that, but I'm even more delighted to receive any wedding invitation because it's a reminder of the invitation that I've received to the wedding supper of the Lamb. But if you've ever been married, if you've had a wedding or you've helped a friend or a relative plan their wedding and and then helped out on the day, you know that before the event, it's just total chaos. Complete and utter chaos. Something always goes horribly wrong. The best man missed his flight. The flower girl got chicken pox. Emmy was in a wedding a few years ago. And uh, I was performing the wedding, and Emmy was a bridesmaid in the wedding, and they were doing the thing before where all the bridesmaids went to go and take pictures, and it was on this beautiful lake uh, in the woods, and uh, all the bridesmaids all went out on this dock out over a lake. And uh, the bride's sister was holding her phone, and was, they were just listening to music, and so she was holding this phone as they were getting their pictures taken, listening to like her favorite songs or something like that. And I think you can see where this is going. Something happened, and the phone slipped out of her hand, this bridesmaid, bridesmaid, and it fell into the lake. And the bridesmaid's first reaction was to dive in after it. So she dives headfirst into the lake and is completely soaked. It's chaos. 20 minutes to figure out what they were going to do. Well, before this wedding mentioned in Revelation 19, there's not just chaos. It's not just a a wet bridesmaid and a lost phone. There's complete and utter destruction. In chapter 18, Babylon is destroyed, and it ends with a cry of never again, never again. Look at this, chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And look at this. The voice of the bridegroom will never be heard in you again. And so this destruction of the city Babylon, it's not like, not like the fire of London when half the city was destroyed, or the blitz of Liverpool where buildings could be built again. It's more like the sinking of the Titanic 
Never again will the first-class passengers walk on the decks, and never again will music fill the dancing hall in the Titanic, and never again will a lavish meal be served in the dining hall, and never again will she arrive at port to great celebration and fanfare. And so when Babylon falls, there's nothing but eerie silence. No light, no music, no weddings. But then turn the page, chapter 19. John goes through the door back into the heavenly throne room, that place that is filled with the brilliant light shining from the throne and the four fantastic creatures and 24 elders surrounding the throne and thousands upon thousands of angels and multitudes from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they're singing. And again, and just as in Babylon, there's a cry of never again, never again, this multitude that is singing It's like a great roar and they're crying out. In verse 1, they cry hallelujah, which means just simply praise the Lord. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then in verse 3, as the smoke from Babylon rises up forever and ever, they shout again hallelujah. And then in verse 4, these four fantastic creatures and the 24 elders, they get involved and they cry out amen, which means we agree. They say amen, we agree with that. Hallelujah. And in verse 5, now a voice actually comes out from the throne and it says, Praise our God, all you His servants. All you who fear Him, great and small. And then after this, the roar of the multitude joins in again, only now it's louder like rushing waters or rolling thunder as this multitude cries out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. And if that wasn't enough, Remember, in Babylon, there's no more weddings. But now in heaven, the invitation rings out in a mighty chorus from this multitude. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, And he added, these are the very true words of God. And so the invitation is standing. The invitation is open. The invitation is there for you today. It comes straight from God Himself. It's His words. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. To leave the chaos of Babylon behind. To remove her clothes of immorality and of greed and of adultery and to receive the clothing, that righteousness from Jesus Christ. And you know, John is so captivated by this invitation that he turns and he, he goes to worship the angel, but the angel stops him in verse 10 and he says, look, I'm a servant like you, so don't worship me, worship God. And do you know what that little strange moment shows us? It shows us that the thing that will really change your heart, the thing that will really help you to live in these wedding clothes now while you're here on earth, the thing that will really help you to do that is worship. Worship God. Give God your worship. Give Him your affection. Tell Him that you love Him. Tell Him that He's the most central thing in your life and He will become the one that you love supremely. Tell Him that by worshiping Him, 
Tell him that. Worship him. And when you do that, he becomes the most central thing in your life. Let's do that now. Let's stand to our feet and let's tell him that he is worthy. Let's sing of his love. Let's worship him as the multitude does.